Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rash's World. Today, we have a very special guest, and it's an honor to have Congressman Adam Smith here. Welcome to Rash's World. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance. Great. And so uh, how would you briefly describe yourself to our audience? What would you say? And there's a lot of things to say, but what would you focus on, which is uh, what I'm interested in here? Sure. Well, I'd briefly, you know, I'm a member of the United States Congress. I represent the ninth district of the state of Washington, which is basically Seattle, Bellevue and South King County. I've been in that uh, job for 26 and a half years now. Uh, so I was elected in 1996. I grew up uh, in SeaTac, you know, which is in the, the middle of the ninth district. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, in the state Senate for six years before moving on to Congress. I am married for almost 30 years now with uh, two children who are 22 and 20. And yeah, that's the basic way I would describe it. And then as far as the book is concerned, I, I went through some lifelong struggles with, with chronic pain um, and some mental health issues that, that got bad and out of control um, about 10 years ago. And I wrote the book about sort of how I got into the mess in the first place and then how I found my way out. Yeah, so the book is Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's a candid book. It's when I'm reading through it, and as someone who has suffered from, from anxiety too, you just like, you just nod constantly. Like, yes, right. yes, you know, and it feels so good that there is someone there are other people who are talking about this openly, like yourself, and who are in a, in a, in a very important position and uh, who, who will be uh, uh, listened to as well. The only thing I don't, uh, I have sometimes, I have qualms with is the title itself, Lost and Broken, <laughs> because I think it should be found in whole. Yes, well, <clears throat> I guess the, the, the subtitle is where I sort of put that in, is my, my journey back implies that I got back in there. But it really, and that's what I want to try to capture in the book is first of all, just how tough the struggle was, how low I was when this whole thing started. And also I think the point of the title is I think this is the way a lot of people feel. Uh, the way I've come to sum it up is anxiety, depression, and chronic pain. There's probably tens of millions of people in this country who suffer from some combination of those three things. And a lot of times when it hits you, you're trying to figure out what to do about it. And it just seems kind of hopeless. It certainly did for me for a long period of time. Um, and then the second piece, though, is you can find help. Yes. Um, so I want to, this is how bad it is. I'm not going to mitigate how bad it is, but there are still paths to getting better. And it's interesting because we say a third of the population is suffering from anxiety. I think it's much higher. I think the, the other two thirds are just not realizing they're suffering from it. And you just need to look around and uh, today uh, people are angry. And to me, that's a sign of dissatisfaction, yeah. but also anxiety because it's coming out in different forms. So crazy is the new normal in our, in our world to, today. And especially with the pandemic, we all suffered from anxiety. So yeah, I think I would, it is I quite I would disagree with you slightly on that. Okay. And I think it is important yeah. to draw a distinction between stress and the challenges of life and actual anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something people wrestle with. Now, I would say that mental health is about both. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't actually have anxiety or depression, understanding how your mind works, how you perceive events what has happened in your life that is impacting you, how you react to your emotions, 
is really important to, to figure out, you know, that you don't have to chase after every emotion that comes into you. But anxiety and depression itself, because, you know, most of my life, most of my life, I did not have anxiety or depression. Okay. I was a high stress person. I certainly had a problematic childhood. I was adopted. I had some, you know, problems with my adoptive parents and with my siblings, things that really, you know, made, made my life a challenge. I had, you know, a, a knee injury when I was 12 years old that led to a lifetime of chronic pain. So I had all of that, mm -hmm. but it was only three points in my life when it really crossed over into depression and anxiety. When I was 25, I had like a five month bout of, of depression. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on. Just nothing interested me. I was constantly just in a down state that was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. I didn't even recognize it as depression. I got over it in four or five months. I never did anything about it. And I just stopped thinking about it. And then when I was uh, 40 years old, 2005, anxiety, uncontrollable, not, not stress, just like constant. Even if there wasn't anything specifically in front of me that I should have been worried about, I had that feeling of existential fear. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a difference in terms of understanding what you're dealing with between just the normal stress and pressures of life and the challenge of processing those and actually having anxiety or depression. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. But there's that kind of fear of death that is always also with us too. And Otto yeah. Rank would, would talk about that, the stress of being born even, and that kind of, uh, that stress stays with us. So when we're in in fear and when we're experiencing uh, uh, difficult situations, we go in the fetal position, which is kind of automatic back to the to the womb and so on. But I, I like to talk about psychotherapy too. And that sure. is something that is complex and uh, you experience it. And at first you were hesitant to even seek help. And that is, again, affecting many of us too, where we just mistrust it or have uh, wrong conceptions about it as well. Yeah. And that's like, and I will agree with your statement in the sense that I think everybody should think about their mental health um, and think about, you know, how they feel about things, what's going on in their life. You have to do that. Now, for the most part, most people won't need psychotherapy. Um, you know, you need to be honest with yourself, have people you can talk to. But if you get to that point, what psychotherapy does is it helps you examine your life and the things that might be causing you anxiety or depression that you're not aware of. And the basic premise behind this is you're burying things. You're not being honest about how you really feel. And it can, it can be something that's happening right now. You're in a job, you're in a relationship where you're pretending that it's okay, but it's really not. Or it could be something from your childhood, some traumatic event that you just buried. And it can go both ways. It could be something that was done to you um, that makes you feel, you know, and you've just buried it because you were never able to deal with it. Or it can be something that you did that you feel guilty about, a mistake that you made. You have to be honest with yourself. And psychotherapy really helps you to be honest with yourself. And the final thing I'll say, and I quote this in the book, I didn't really understand how psychotherapy worked, even as I was having people explain it to me until I read a quote um, from the psychologist uh, Alice Miller from the, the UK. She said, the purpose of psychotherapy is not to correct the past. It is to help a patient understand his history and grieve for what he has lost. And that was part of my problem. I initially entered psychotherapy thinking, okay, we're going to dive into the past and we're going to fix it. All right. Every mistake I made, everything, I'm going to rationalize my life. It's going to... No, it's there. You can't fix it. You can't make your life perfect. We're going to teach you 
how to process it in a way that doesn't cause you anxiety or depression. Yeah, and, and, and the importance of those childhood experiences, and I think the subconscious for me, the psychoanalysis really helped me to where to look and what is causing this. And I love right. how you're asking yourself the question, why am I feeling this way? And so the treatment often is like, let's treat the symptoms, but we don't get to the root cause. And I find the yeah. medical model is built on that. So they give you, okay, we alleviate your anxiety, you're fine now. And you didn't deal with the problem which is well, something that's much un, much more underlying in many cases, right? Yeah, and that's what I found out because you know, I went to probably a dozen different psychiatrists, psychologists um, before I found one who actually identified what the problem was. And the early ones kept sort of focusing on, okay, what's making you anxious? Mm -hmm. And we talk about it. You know, I had young children, um, you know, making sure I raised my children right, the pressures, you know, flying back and forth for Congress, um, you know, my health, you know, because I had back pain and other things that were bothering me. And we would talk about that. And, and look, that's important. That, that's <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy. That's understanding what's going on with you. And if you think about what's making you anxious and try to work out strategies for dealing with it, that absolutely helps. But I had something that was underlying that, right. that made all of those things dramatically worse. As I say in the book, the better question would have been not what's making me anxious, but why is it making me so anxious? Exactly. All right. And that's where you got to get back into the psychotherapy, potentially into your childhood, in, into more hidden things that may be frustrating you. You mentioned the anger that people show and the conflict we have in society. You know, much of that is driven, you know, you, you're not necessarily just angry because that person cut you off on the freeway. It's probably exactly. what's going on in your life that makes yes. you react more violently to it. And that's what you have to get an understanding of. Yes. Know who you are, the life you've lived, what you've done, what has happened to you, and really process it. Yeah. And again, we say we're triggered, and that's entering the language a bit more. And that is, again, the, the subconscious that's it's not the other person. It's not the situation. It just brings out something from the past and dealing with that. And you mentioned earlier honesty. I think that is that is very, very important. And with that, it comes a lot of hard work too, but working with ourselves, working with our anxiety. I actually, my perspective of anxiety is it's actually very beneficial. We just have to face it and deal with it and we can come out so much better. And I, I, my experience was a form of transcendence in a way, transformation. Because I, I suffered from various health uh, problems as well, not chronic pain, but diabetes and high blood pressure. And okay. so my medical doctor would give me medication like this is going to fix it. And I said, no, my my problem in my case, I know that it's something else. It's diabetes two, type two. So it's my stress that's ca causing it. And going back to my childhood, the, the experiences I've had. And once you deal with it, I'm actually fine now. And last time I checked, my blood pressure was fine. And so was my diabetes. And I did not need the medication. So I see the body That's as ways of, point. yes, a ways of yeah. it's telling us something. It's communicating. I'm feeling pain because there is something wrong. And I think that is hugely important to, to listen to the body and dive into it dig deeper as as you're saying and being honest about it too but it is also very di difficult it is very difficult it's very painful but you come out uh, it's like in the tunnel and you come out on the other light and you come so much stronger out of it uh, from my experience you become so much more resilient as well 
Yeah. No, I think the point you made in there that, that people need to think about is anxiety, depression. It, it's like physical pain. Physical exactly. pain is a warning to you that something's wrong that you need to address. Um, and, you know, I, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. And each individual is going to be different. But I think it really is important to recognize that it is that trigger mechanism and there's something you can do about it. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the, there's also the stigma holding us back, though, ourselves as well as others. So it's it's that difficulty of overcoming it. So what would you say can we do to to make sure that we're not limiting ourselves in many ways or we're not seeking the help we need or we're not dealing or we're not talking about our anxiety openly as, as you're doing in your book? What is holding us back? What's the stigma there and what can we do about it? Well, I think, you know. The stigma is the concern that this will label you as a person. I know that certainly was the case for me. I mean, looking back on it, long before I had the uncontrollable anxiety when I was 40 years old, there were a whole bunch of things that have happened in my life that were kind of indicators that I, that I had some mental issues that I hadn't dealt with. But I just didn't want to be put into that category. So really, I, I just I never even thought about it. Like even when I went through that depression that I described when I was 25, I can't recall a single moment during or after that that it ever occurred to me that I had a mental health issue. And a big part of it is because we imagine in society that there's this line and I'm going to stay on this side of it. OK, I'm not crazy. I ain't going over there. All right. When in fact, if you open it up and view it, as you said earlier, as just part of your overall health, that creates a much you know, greater opportunity. But also the reason for the stigma, easiest to put it up, think about it is, I mean, when I first happened, I thought there's no way I could keep my job if people knew that I had this anxiety, if people knew what was going on inside of me. If, if they, I mean, I went to elaborate lengths to conceal the fact that I was going to a psychiatrist that first time. And I describe in the book when I went to, you know, get my, the, when I got a clonazepam prescription, um, you know, I was desperate, you know, I'm going to my local pharmacy. I'm like, okay, who knows me here? You know, but it is because we believe that we will not be able to keep our job, that we will lose relationships that are important to us, that people will view us differently than we want to be viewed. Now, the way to overcome that is to be more accepting of it. We've actually made a lot of progress in the last three or four years. A lot more public figures are being open about it. There's a bigger discussion about it. I think the other way to overcome it is basically to have the conversation that you and I just had a minute ago, okay, that there's a spectrum here. All right. As with any sort of physical health, mental health, you're simply dealing with something that is part of life. All right. You know, if you break your leg skiing, you're not going to not go to the doctor because you're a fear of people. Oh, look, he's got a broken leg. He can't walk anymore. You know, but with the mental health thing, it's like, no, 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 we can't have people find out. It is in the final piece of this, which we've talked about also is you can get better because that was the other part of my thing. And I also document this in the book. I'm like, if I'm crazy, I'm crazy. You know, people go to therapists for 50 years and then they don't get better. All right. So, you know, I don't want to be this way because I'm desperately afraid there's no way to get better. Yeah. There is. And we need to better yeah. advertise that. Yeah. We need to yeah. let people know that there are pathways. There are things you can do. Because I think a lot of the mental health conversation I see is it's more like, oh, that's why that person is the way they are. Okay. And that's fine. That's an important part of understanding it, but it's not a static thing. 
there are treatments that you can do no matter where you're at. And believe me, I want to make this point. It's really important. My story is my story. That's it. I'm under no illusion that somehow my story proves that everybody can, can overcome this. Everyone's problems are diff different, no doubt about it. But no matter where you're at, there are things that can make you better. Perfect? No, probably not. But there are ways to approach mentally how you look at the world through cognitive behavioral therapy, through psychotherapy, through better understanding your emotions that can help you get better in the same way that if you work out, you'll get stronger. It's the same thing. You're improving your mind in the same way that you improve your body. Yeah, there's there so many things I want to I want to mention and jump upon sure. here, which is wonderful. So one of the things is, again, when you're projecting a persona that you are not, you're trying to hide something, you're trying to hide here, I'm feeling anxious, and I don't want to share it with others. And so in your position, it's much more stressful than, uh, say, in, in any other jobs we would have. But I think that is uh, wasted energy, too. And you are just like draining yourself, and you are creating more anxiety through that. But the moment where you openly talk about it, it's such a relief and you say, well, you can do with this whatever you want, but I'm going to be honest uh, with myself and with others. And that, that's a very hard thing to do, by the way. So so kudos to you for for talking about that. But it's also that sense of relief. It's like now I can I can be myself fully. But in a position like your job as a politician, you have to project something else often. And so we, we see people who, who play these tough guys, but in fact, they are human and they will have issues like this. So once they do that, once they open up, we can connect more with them, I think. On, uh, we can trust them more as well because we yeah, see them the only as thing, one of us. Yeah. Only I, would say, I, I, I don't think that my job is as unique as some people might, might think. No matter who you are, what job you have, what relationships you have, the friends, family you hang out with expectations get created within that world, all right? And and there's a way you want others to view you. Now, obviously, in my job, I don't want others to view me in a certain way so that hopefully they'll keep voting for me. Um, but in a way, that's what everybody's going through, you know? And it depends on who you are, but, you know, you have a relationships at work and your family and elsewhere, and you want people to view you a certain way. And so you kind of try to, you know, force yourself into this, and you don't address what's honestly going on with you. So I think you, you put that quite well. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing is also our body is helping us. Our body is trying to heal itself. And so when you have a flu, uh, what do they prescribe? This medication won't help you. Just rest, relax, and your body yeah. will take care of itself. And I think it's the same with the mind. And we don't see that connection. The mind and the body is actually connected in many ways. So uh, it's it's really necessary for us to give us ourselves the break we need so we don't reach a state of burnout, so we don't overwork, so we don't worry well, I think about the other The other part of that, that that's really important because that's that's only a small piece. That, that's actually a little, little misleading. And that was certainly the first time I had my anxiety attack. That was ultimately what I concluded. The psychiatrist was not particularly helpful. I didn't want to stay on benzodiazepines. So I stopped doing that, stopped doing the benzos. I just got over it. And I concluded that I just, I had too much going on in my life. I had to find a way to slow down. All right. And that certainly can be part of it. But there's a couple other key things about that. Number one, what somebody told me early on in this process, it's not the amount of stress in your life. It's how you process it. Now, I didn't believe that at the time. 
okay, I thought that was, if you will, insane. You know, I, and I, but what I really learned, what is very helpful to me is you can take the stress that you have, you don't have to think about it all the time. You know, getting to sleep is the good analogy. People in my job, you know, I was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, so I work on a lot of national security. A lot of people ask me that that cliched question, what keeps you up at night? Okay. And they're, they're focusing on, you know, you know, nuclear conflict or China or Russia or whatever. And I always say nothing keeps me up at night. All right. Because there's no point. I am not going to solve every single problem in the world. And that's what used to keep me up is it's like, oh gosh, I haven't figured this out. I got to, I got to think, I got to think, I got to think, I got to get through it. No, the problems will be there in the morning. Okay. You are not going to solve them. So let your mind go. And in that sense, there had to be space. I, I think you can build your capacity to deal with stress as long as you process it properly. Now, Depending on who you are, you know, you got to figure out what are you capable of, what can you, but I think people can accomplish more if they realize, well, it's, it's the serenity prayer. Yes. Okay. I love the serenity you prayer. You know, which is cliche, but it really is, no, you know, control what you can control and don't worry about what you can't. Exactly. All right. But I was, I was stressing yeah. out about the default, the uh, debt uh, <laughs> relief and so on. So, and, and it doesn't even affect me personally. And I am a Canadian, so it's uh, maybe the further away from it. But in a sense, it triggers yeah. something because that's my concern of not being able to, to pay my bill in time or that kind of worry. So it, it's quite fascinating that we well, can create this is, sorry, no, anything. An, yeah. an important point in modern society that I worry a great deal about. Um, I think... We are being we are raising a generation of, of kids who are more focused on global problems. And this is a message. We give them a lot. Okay. You know, this is your world. Take responsibility for it. And so you have young people who are obsessed about climate change or obsessed about all these conflicts. I think we need to teach them a different lesson, which is you can't worry about everything all the time. Yeah. All right. You know. And that's part of life. Life isn't perfect and life doesn't go on forever. You mentioned, you know, death earlier. That's something, you know, I've wrestled with at different times in my life and certainly contributed to my anxiety. But we have to teach, I think, our young people, it's okay not to solve all the world's problems. And this is one of the biggest points that I want to make, because if you feel like you're not meeting your responsibilities in the world, that can be a crushing pressure on you. You have to accept, first of all, you can't solve every problem. And second of all, that's okay. Yes, all right. Yes, yes, and that yes, was yes. one of the big things in my book. A lot of times when you look at anxiety, you think back on your childhood when something was done to you, you know, you were abused or neglected or something bad happened. And so a lot of our focus is on that. And I certainly had some issues, nothing dramatic, but some issues in that regard. But the biggest thing for me was my family growing up didn't work out particularly well. I grew up in a blue collar family. My father was a ramp serviceman at United Airlines. They were, my father and mother were unhappy for a good portion of their life. And then my father died when I was 19. My mother died when I was 25. My older brother had all kinds of problems. And I, that just really gnawed at me. All right. Number one, you know, it was a problematic upbringing. I would think about, well, gosh, if things had been different, if I hadn't been given up for adoption and on, 
on and on and on. But the thing that I wasn't recognizing that I finally did in my book was I also felt guilty about that. And I mentioned okay? that just now, yeah. <laughs> because I, I was selfish when I was a kid, you know, in, in some very specific instances, particularly after my father died and I was trying to get through college and my mother was struggling. And I, I wrestled with that. And I had this argument for, gosh, years. It's like, yeah, but, you know, there wasn't anything I could have done. And really what I did in the book, finally, at one point, is I just said, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Not I'm sorry, but it wasn't really my fault. But no, there were things I could have done that I didn't do. I can't fix it. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I'm going to move on. And I think... Yeah. Yeah, processing right. that is an important piece. Yes, yes, processing it. So, and so I, I think really like when we look at guilt, when we look at worrying, all of this I see as kind of weighing us down and it's wasted energy. And so it's not bad. It's good. I mean, to, to have that feeling, but what do you do about it? For me, it's always the action. What's the solution? What can be done? And uh, really accepting those feelings as not something bad that pushes you down, but seeing as, okay, Again, the serenity prayer, I love. It's like there's stuff that is outside of my control. And more importantly, I cannot be perfect. And you mentioned perfect earlier. I don't think I want to be perfect because I no. like I'm a human being and I'm I'm evolving because when you reach that state of perfection, what's next? I mean, there's nothing you can do. You can't improve anymore. So I think the the whole like also like when we look at personal growth and self-help is too much towards like getting better, getting better, getting better, which is not bad, but we're also fine. I mean, when you are in that state, and yes, it's it feels horrible, but it's like I'm okay right now. Give yourself permission to feel fine for that for a few moments, and then you see that actually you are fine, and you can get out of it. And I see people who are stuck, and they don't feel they have any options. And I think yes, you do. It might be a very tiny option. It's going to be very difficult, but you do have to also accept responsibility for yourself, your own actions, as you're saying. And also forgiving yourself and forgiving others. And I think that should be the shift where we really go deep down and say, you know what, whatever mistakes I made, I forgive myself and I forgive others. You mentioned uh, serial killers and everybody's worthy of love. And I, I think that's very beautiful how you're, you're talking about Buddhism and then that kind of like everyone is worthy of love. And we often tend to forget that, especially when it comes to ourselves, I think. Well, and that's the core concept. And ultimately, that was the diagnosis that I hadn't gotten from the first dozen or so psychiatrists and psychologists that I saw. They were skipping forward to focusing on cognitive behavioral therapy, on how you process information. And even when I got into psychotherapy, it was focusing on, okay, what have you not honestly addressed in your life? And both of those things are really important. But the core of it is what you just said. The pressure that we feel gets a lot greater if we do not think that we are fundamentally worthy as human beings, mm -hmm. if we don't have what psychiatrists refer to as a healthy narcissism, which okay. is an understanding that just because we exist, that makes us worthy of love. Because if you don't believe that, then everything that you're doing in life becomes so much more pressure packed. I have to succeed. I have to be the best yes. because if I'm not, I had no point in being here. You have to have that core belief in your own self-worth and then crucially for the health of society, a core belief in the self-worth of everybody else also. Yeah. And what if we change that mentality and say, you are already perfect. Now, what are you going to do about that? Now, how are we going to show the world and contribute to it? And uh, in your book, you mentioned don't give up on science, logic, and reason 
which I completely yeah. agree with. But what about faith? You did not mention faith. Well, I allude to faith throughout okay. the whole thing. I say that, you know, throughout much of my life, I always believed that there was a purpose to my life. Um, a destiny might be a slightly overstatement. But yes, I had faith in that. And I didn't, you're right, I didn't get in. I have a well-developed philosophy on this where you have to you have to balance faith with reason because yeah. reason, logic, and science will only get you so far. And you can go, you can go either a spiritual way here or just a practical way here. I'm kind of in the spiritual realm, but whichever way you want to go, you are never going to have the perfect answer. At some point, you're simply going to have to make a decision and move forward. And that's where the faith comes in. And in my life, and this is why I'm a somewhat spiritual person, I believe there, there are things guiding me in that regard towards the right answer, signs that push you in the right direction. So it's not always just what you can mathematically or logically lay out. You do have to trust your feelings. There is a faith that can get you to the right place. And I would say it's like a, it's an art, it's an art, not a science. All right. You got all this data, all these points, but then you just, but you know what? I have a feeling this is the right way to go. And you have to have those feelings and trust that. So, yes, I think spirituality and faith are a key part of this as well. Frankly, whether whatever your faith is, or even yeah. if you don't have one um, in the religious God sense of the word. Basically, intuition. You can replace it with intuition. There's that, that gut feeling. And it's it's proven in my own life, too. I've seen it many times where the intuition, it seems like the worst answer logically. But I followed it. And it was actually the best outcome. But I agree with you that we can't just like, uh, we should respect science yeah. and so on. I mean, of course. Um, but uh, what I don't like also, when doctors tell me, like, first of all, they don't know what's, what the problem is. And I get that a lot from people. It's like, we don't know. And the other thing is, there's nothing you can do about it. And I think both of yeah. those things are limiting and basically wrong. And there's so much we can do in whatever situation you may find yourself. There is a lot that can be done. And don't limit yourself. I think that is that is important. Yeah. No, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but as you've experienced, I think is just about everybody I've ever talked to who's had a, who's had a healthcare struggle, whether mental or physical has experienced. Um, the healthcare profession, I say in our country, um, I don't know what it's like. I've also read that doctors in general, no matter where they are in the world, don't necessarily have the best approach in terms of working with their patients in a problem-solving way. They're very scientific about it. Like, nope, this is what we got. And it's really a more complicated picture than that. And the healthcare professionals don't work well with patients to find the right diagnosis and find the right treatment for many of the reasons. And it's often just... rushed. There's like limited uh, yeah. time right. and limited time in, in our case, sadly, as well. But uh, uh, thank you so much, Congressman Adam Smith, for, for, for being on Arash's World. Your book, I want to remind everyone, is Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about, but I recommend everyone to read your book because it was just wonderful reading it. It's such an honest and candid book, and it resonated so much with, with me, and I think with anyone who would read it, whether you, you suffer from anxiety or not, or maybe you think you're not suffering, but it, there's a lot of things that uh, we can gain from it. So thank you so much for, for writing this book and for doing the work that you do. Well, thank you. And that's, and that's really, you know, you know, I don't know if this is why I wrote the book, but as it evolved, it became, you know, the, the, it starts a conversation. 
All right. A conversation that we should have to work through all these things. Every time I do one of these interviews, frankly, I learn something. Um, it just starts the conversation about dealing with a problem that I think is probably the largest healthcare crisis that we face, um, certainly in this country, in the world, you know, is anxiety, depression, chronic pain, things that, that so many people are trying to deal with. So I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Thank you so much.